Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Prison Officers Association, the UK's largest professional union for prison, correctional and secure psychiatric workers with over 30,000 members. In this episode, we discuss post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. While the public readily associate PTSD with the military and blue light occupations, its prevalence amongst operational prison officers is often overlooked. Later in this episode, we will hear from Ministry of Justice officials Caroline Sheldon and Tracy Varela on the work being done by the employer to assist POA members who find themselves facing PTSD. But first, let's hear from Joanna Binley, a research student who has looked into the prevalence of and response to PTSD amongst prison officers. Joanna has worked in a prison previously and saw a fraction of what the officers go through. That's how she met her fiancé and learnt more about everything he and his colleagues go through. And thought too about how even after having left the service, PTSD can stick with them. Joanna Binley, thank you very much for joining us on this POA podcast. We, we're here to talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know about PTSD amongst members, say, of the armed forces, coming back from conflict zones or from emergency services personnel with experience of one-off catastrophic events like Hillsborough. But I guess most people would say, look, we know prison officers' work is dangerous, but surely it's not that bad. Yeah, I get why people would think that, because I think prison institutions and the field of prisons, I suppose, mm. is kind of shielded from the public's eye. You, you don't think about it unless you're there. I think people don't want to have to think about where those people go when they're sent to prison and the people who are essentially caring for them day in, day out. So that's a big part of why I think people think, oh, it can't be that bad. But I suppose those kind of like the armed forces and emergency services dealing with one-off events like Hillsborough, I think they're seen as kind of the obvious traumatic careers, whereas prison officers deal with very similar things, I think. You know, armed forces, a lot of the time they're surrounded by violence and threat when they're in a war zone. And I actually think this is kind of similar with officers, particularly in the higher category institutions. They're dealing with the constant threat of violence to themselves and their colleagues with whom they're working in very close quarters, a very demanding job. So, you know, a lot of them have very tight bonds with their with their colleagues. So seeing threat to those colleagues as well, that's going to affect you in a big way. And then as well, for those people in higher category prisons, but also the people in lower category prisons, you know, they're dealing with self-harm and suicidal behaviour on quite a frequent basis. Um, and that in itself can be very traumatic for people. And I think the big thing to, that I think about is the fact that even one of those incidents would be classed as very traumatic to a member of the general public. But many prison officers are experiencing that daily and sometimes multiple incidents in one day. And that's coupled with the fact that it's a demanding job. It doesn't just stop with one incident. So, for example, an officer goes to a cell, sees somebody who's attempted suicide. That officer has to deal with that incident, follow all the protocol and the paperwork, then just carry on with their day as if nothing's happened. They're not told to go home a lot of the time. They might be, but that kind of depends on your manager. And it's just kind of seen as like, oh, just part of the job. And and also they're dealing with a threat of violence constantly. And it's been found that a constant threat of violence can actually be kind of more stressful than direct victimisation. And they, so they're constantly on a high alert, which can lead to hypervigilance, which is a common symptom and predictor of PTSD. So I think it's actually really quite similar in, in a lot of ways. But I mean, trauma can affect anyone in all different walks of life. So it's not 
as if just armed forces get it. It's it's for many different people. And I think that's something that came up in the study that we did. People were kind of saying, like, I didn't really recognise that I had PTSD because I thought, well, I haven't been in the army. You know, I, I haven't been to war. And they were just kind of thinking, like, oh, I don't fit into that box. So I think that's a problem, really, at the moment. I'm sure all prison officers listening to, listening to this will absolutely recognise what you've just described uh, as mm. being as being you know, bang on the money, absolutely, absolutely accurate. Why is it, you do you think, that no work on this aspect has really been carried out until your survey? Um, well, there is some work. There's just not much work. I'm looking at PTSD in prison officers and what there is, it's mainly focused on, um, like, it's international papers. So it's mainly focused in the US and on correctional officers there. There's a lot more in the US about PTSD. So there's stuff about stress and mental health of prison officers in the UK, Still not loads because it's quite a niche field as a, as a prison is. But at the time I did the research, there wasn't anything in the UK that actually delved into the experience of PTSD in prison officers or ex-prison officers, or at least nothing I could find or that, or that had been published. Also, what does usually focus on prisons is mainly about prisoners, but there's very little about prison officers or ex-prison officers, which I think is a big missing kind of piece of the puzzle. There's been prevalence rate, so like estimates of how common it is, in, in different countries and, and some of them are kind of saying it's about 33%. Some people are saying over half the officers in, in these US jails have PTSD symptoms, but there's no estimate at all in, in the UK. But one paper in the US actually estimated that correctional officers had levels of PTSD equivalent to those of Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans. And another found that they had well, they found 27% of correctional officers fully met the criteria for a PTSD diagnosis compared to 14% of New York firefighters post 9-11. So, you know, it's a big number. It's not it's not an insignificant percentage, but there's just no actual estimate in the UK. I mean, I'm guessing that when you started your research and you started looking around, you must have been quite taken aback at the fact that just this is such a sparsely populated area in terms of UK-based research. Yeah, it was quite frustrating in, in some aspects because from a writing point of view, you're kind of thinking, OK, I've got nothing to actually compare this to. But the only thing you can do is kind of look around it. So you've got to look at internationally. That's one of the reasons as well why I wanted to do kind of a qualitative paper. So actually conduct interviews and actually understand more of the experience of these people rather than just some numbers. But I think it is important to get some numbers. But I mean, Fortunately, I had the support of the POA to recruit participants and they recognise that this is a problem for many of their members, despite there not being explicit papers on it. So hopefully any future research would link with them and, and kind of use them as the gatekeepers again and, and find participants yeah. that way. Yeah, I mean, one of the striking things about your report, which is available on the POA website, are the quotes from the the, the participants who 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 you, you spoke with. And one I've, I've just noted down here, in talking about PTSD, this former prison officer said, it doesn't exist. Nobody suffers from PTSD, according to senior management. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody is willing to acknowledge it. Do you think that's a major reason why PTSD is such a problem in prison? Yes, I, I do. I feel like if it was acknowledged and spoken about my management, then more officers would feel able to discuss their issues and hopefully get some help before things go too far, so to speak. Um, but of course, acknowledgement and speaking about something only goes so far. What we really need is kind of an understanding and, and kind of cultural shift. But otherwise, I think just kind of saying like, oh, yes, blah, 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 poor you. 
they're there it, it comes across as just lip service and there's really no you don't want to approach somebody like that so I think yeah like I said there needs to be a cultural shift I mean I do think there's been a shift in attitudes to mental health in society and that's something that came up in the interviews that we did some people were saying you know I could say I've got anxiety or I could say I've got depression and it wouldn't be kind of frowned upon or shunned but PTSD isn't as kind of acceptable um and that was something that that they felt and that was something that came up with them so what I'm saying is I suppose I think there needs to be a better understanding of PTSD and management levels and then that can kind of trickle down to the lower bands and that would like kind of let people speak out about it and hopefully have time to go to their treatment sessions without being kind of hurried back to get back onto the wings there's also these things kind of called feeling rules that's a theory about what emotions are appropriate for each setting so in prison it seems fear sadness anxiety are unacceptable at the moment so to show this would kind of be seen as inappropriate so I think these feeling rules are only going to be changed by cultural shifts that with something as hierarchical as the prison service and and you know private prisons it needs to trickle down from the top for people to be able to speak out I, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that people at the moment people don't have the words or aren't allowed to use the words to express their feelings or to kind of yeah. self-identify. And therefore there is no way into the discussion. So it's very easy for senior management to, to put up almost like a brick wall and just say, look, this people would talk to us if there was a problem about this, but of course, yeah. without realizing that the whole environment prevents people from, from discussing it. So yeah, I, I, I understand about what effectively are recommendations from, from your report, but how, how would anyone be able to tell if you, you know, if you suspected that there had been this cultural shift and you went back and revisited this, this topic in say three, four, five, five years, how would you know, what would you look for to tell you that there had been an effective cultural shift? Oh, that's a tricky one. I think what you'd be kind of looking for is, well, I mean, there'd be multiple things to consider. So you've got to kind of look at rates of sickness, um, staff turnover, because I mean, the service is losing tens of thousands of years of experience because people are leaving because they're unwell um so staff turnover and also kind of considering what officers and ex-officers are actually saying do they think they're treated okay now do they what what do they feel you know would they feel more supported in speaking about ptsd how do they feel their ptsd is kind of going for want of a better word do they feel they're recovering or coping or that their ptsd is changing in any way I guess what I'm saying though, is that more research is just still needed. We just need to kind of bulk out this area with research mainly. We need a prevalence estimate, so we actually need to know how common this is in, in officers and ex-officers in the UK. And then we need to kind of re-examine in a few years or quite a few years perhaps, um, is it decreasing, et cetera. But that's kind of a surface level way to look at it. You're just looking at blank numbers there I suppose but I mean if you had unlimited money and funding you'd want kind of prevalence estimates support in place for staff and ex-staff so extended occupational health sessions that aren't difficult for staff to attend etc support groups charities to turn to a cultural shift that's not kind of hush hush if you've got PTSD and less acceptance of this just kind of like oh it's just part of your job get on with it get back on the wings attitude it would need to be kind of a clinical way of looking at this at the prevalence estimate so actual diagnostic criteria it needs money pumping into it basically um but research is what i think yeah. needed and and also considering probably the poa would start hearing less 
about this being a problem you know what are their members saying that would be a good indication of it how many people are being pushed out or feeling pushed out or have been pushed out of their jobs because of their PTSD if they're not getting so many reports of them then probably things are getting better but again it's it's quite complex I suppose to consider whether things are working well except all those measures that you you identified as being indicators of success or or, or, or effectiveness that should be part of routine data collection shouldn't it it shouldn't yeah. be hard it, I, I, I guess what you're saying is that is that actually there are so many targets or measures to aim at you know you're going to know whether or not you're you're, you're having an effect one one way and another yeah and I just the, the thing that I found really quite shocking when I was kind of looking through the Ministry of Justice um, stats that they just didn't have they didn't have figures on kind of diagnosis which is understandable because a lot of people don't actually get a formal diagnosis but you know there's no there's not even any figures around kind of suicide rates um in prison officers which has been found to be a lot higher than you know the general population again those papers are international they they're u.s papers but although very different prison systems it's still kind of a western country there is some comparison available so it's just it's just concerning that you know people could be dying because of this and nobody's really no nobody really knows because it's just kind of swept under the rug or people around them know but outside of that you don't know Joanna thank you very much indeed we can see from Joe's research work that the situation is both very difficult and urgent So it was good to be able to talk to Ministry of Justice officials to understand what the employer's approach is. This is seen as a live and important issue for HMPPS management, and there is considerable work being done to address the challenges operational grades face. I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Caroline Sheldon and Tracy Varela from the Ministry of Justice's Employee Psychological Services team. Caroline, that sounds really rather daunting. What what do you and Tracy do in practice? I think it's a really good question. I look at the policy and strategy of the psychological services offer that we have for HMPPS staff. We start from the position that we're all individual and we all we're all human and we've all got and will experience things in different ways. So not one size it's not necessarily a one size fits all offer that we have. So we, we try and look that our, and, and ensure that our services that we provide to HMPPS staff do look at the individual human experience and to look to see that we can uh, reach out and, and ensure that individuals have the support that they require to, come to, to fulfil the, the roles that they do. Right. And, and I mean, the thing about human experiences is we're all different. Uh, so it needs to be tailored to the individual experiences, doesn't it? And how, what would you say is the threshold that individuals need to cross when they might want to start thinking about the services you provide or you can put them in touch with? So I'm going to explain this in the way that someone has once explained this to me. Um, and they, they explained it to me as you have a, an ick feeling. It's uh, it's you can't quite put your finger on it. Perhaps it's not necessarily that you're at an extreme end of of a crisis, say uh, for mental health, or you're at a crisis for physical health. It's it's if you are, have that uncomfortable feeling, and they described it as the ick. That that's when we say that we we can help, and that we would invite individuals to reach out and seek the support. We, we can't always define what that is, but certainly to start an investigation or to start a, 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 an inquiry, a self-inquiry process is um, is one that is highly beneficial. 
right. I see. I see. I'm sure we'll come back to that in our in our discussions. Tracy, what's what's your role in, in the MOJ's uh, uh, psychological services team? Well, my role is is slightly different in that um, I'm part of the HR team within the Ministry of Justice. So I'm HR business partner and within the HR team, I look at wellbeing, diversity and inclusion um, initiatives, looking at an audience across HMPPS, so prisons, probation, headquarters. So over the last 12, 18 months, certainly one of the priority areas under wellbeing as through the pandemic is around support through COVID, because we know that that's been a really tough time, particularly on our prison officers and their families at the start and definitely still in the here and now. But that said, I think that the pandemic has opened a door and an opportunity which has encouraged people to talk and uh, seek out support for their own mental health. But Caroline, it doesn't have to take something like a, a pandemic, surely? Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly not just a pandemic. I think it's probably worth just kind of mentioning as some of the language that I might use today. It comes also because part of my background is I'm a cognitive behavioural therapist by by training, clinical supervisor and mediator. So some of the things that I will say at the moment, they may sound quite familiar, but it is to say that it's actually it's it's okay to state that you're not okay. And I know many people have probably heard this before, and it's okay to come and ask and request to speak to someone in a support service or your line manager or the the peer-to-peer support services that are available in HMPPS. But the pandemic, it, it's, it certainly has brought some things to the surface for individuals that may have been bubbling underneath for some time. So there are a, a range of a range of services really that, that we would invite individuals to engage with. And one of them would be the employee assistance programme. Because it it can assist individuals. I'm not saying that it is the one size fits all. It's the it's the silver bullet for someone's experience. But it is a confidential service that at least we can start, as I said before, coming back to that place of inquiry about how we are currently experiencing our own worlds and to ensure that that's really kind of done in a way that's suitable for all by the email or telephone. And I, I think to add in there probably is that that looking at as you've already highlighted that it's not it doesn't have to take something like a pandemic it's quite a reflective uh, reflective question in and of itself that you've asked and which I think is really useful that perhaps for other people who are listening to this is they may actually hear that that reflective process can also be achieved from attending a, a reflective session and or however what treatment individuals would like from there can also be signposted accordingly. Right. All right. Okay. Well, I mean, turning now to some of the specific issues that have been raised by POA members and, and, and representatives, top of the pile has been PTSD. As far as from the union's perspective, there's been a significant increase in PTSD related incidents. And HMPPS has introduced the TRIM support team, and that's the trauma risk management support, which is focused on staff who have experienced a significant or potential traumatic incident. Are there plans for TRIM to be more widely available? I'll I'll pick that one up. So the trauma risk management trim is a peer-led support programme, which is designed to assist people who have been exposed to a potentially traumatic event, as you've already said, and deal with it effectively. Just for information, TRIM was developed by the military and is used successfully in a wide range of services, particularly blue light, so police, ambulance, fire service. Currently, uh, as we speak, in the prison service we have 111 prisons have trained trim practitioners so they have teams in place and recruitment is underway to 
recruit two permanent trainers so that we've got that sustainability of the model. So 111 prisons have got fully recruited trim teams in place. I think there's five remaining prisons that I've got dates booked for the trim to be undertaken. So those teams are made up of staff from the POA membership or maybe from other groups, non-operational grades, but because it's a peer-led process. And care teams and the recently introduced staff support lead roles that are in place across all prisons, they monitor the use of TRIM to ensure that staff, when they have been uh, exposed to a potentially traumatic event or incident, that a TRIM assessment is offered following that incident. So I think it's fair to say that we've moved on a lot and majority of prisons now have got the TRIM team set up. Well, that's certainly that's certainly welcome news. Are, are there any plans to increase the number of EMDR sessions available to staff suffering PTSD? EMDR, for those who are not familiar with it, is eye move. I've got to make sure I get the pronunciation right on this. Eye movement desensitisation reprocessing. Are there plans for that? So I'm I'm going to pick this one up from a from a clinical perspective, and uh, I'd just like to kind of pull us back as to the process of EMDR and. I'd like to offer that EMDR is part of what is recommended as NICE guidelines for treatment of trauma alongside other modalities like um, trauma-focused CBT. And those are available through occupational health referrals. Something I'd like to kind of draw back is about the number of sessions. And it's not every single case can be taken as to what individuals, so we're talking from an individual perspective. It's not just about the number of sessions that somebody may have, as we don't know the rates of which someone would process through the EMDR. EMDR has a set of processes, I think is something that I should say. And it's not necessary that someone may actually be experiencing PTSD. They may actually be experiencing PTS. And there is a distinct difference between the two. So session number doesn't actually impact the rate of recovery for for PTS or PTSD. So post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. And EMDR is a process like any other therapeutic practice everyone is going to be different at the pace they go through the stages of EMDR. I think it's it's uh, it's really quite a, a relevant point here is as much as EMDR is one of the NICE guideline recommended treatments, there isn't a silver bullet fix to PTS or PTSD. There may be a variety like therapeutic interventions. There are several modalities for obvious reasons that it may not suit everybody. So the way that EMDR works with someone may not actually be their kind of most suited type of therapeutic intervention which is why there's the option of trauma-focused CBT or CBT in and of itself. The EAP provider also has the option of doing computerized CBT. It's I think what I'm saying is it's down to the individual. The individual will have a an experience and it's due to that relationship that happens between the clinician and the individual who's who's taking part in EMDR as to what sessions and what is going to be clinically viable, okay. um, not necessarily about just increasing the session number. I think that that's a very clear explanation of about the role EMDR can and does play in in assisting POA members and anyone else who uses these employee assistance program here. So, but sort of going down the level of of risk and of, of damage, if you if if you like, what's available to assist staff to take preventative action for mental ill health, given that they work in such a unique operational environment. 
I'll, I'll um, pick up a few things that are available internally and then um, I'll hand back over to Caroline to look at the um, partnership support that's available. So mental health allies, like Trim, each prison has a mental health allies team in place. We started embedding mental health allies back in just before the pandemic, actually. And since then, we've recruited over 800 mental health allies who are trained and, and in place. And the role of the mental health ally is there's two aspects to it, really. Preventative side. So that is where colleagues are provided time to get out and about into the prisons and talk with colleagues and make time in the workplace to generate conversations around mental health, signpost support and raise general awareness. So that's the preventative side. The other side is where colleagues may want to have a conversation because they may be experiencing poor mental health, that the mental health allies are available uh, or made available to offer a one-to-one -one conversation and be able to signpost the relevant internal support around mental health and also what support can be offered in the community. The other thing um, I would mention is around the hot debrief training. So historically, POA members will have um, who will attended these will have seen these as more of a an approach of let's have a look at what happened, what can we do better next time. So it's that process. Whereas the hot debrief training that is being rolled out now is more focusing on the care. So the actual purpose of the hot debrief is to acknowledge what happened acknowledge the role of the staff involved, normalise the situation of the incident and ensure that the immediate needs of staff have been met. The hot debrief should be a supportive and practical way to help people following a serious incident and the aim is to develop short and long-term adaptive coping methods. The hot debrief should also focus on reassurance, information sharing and normalisation and how staff can actually support each other. So just to clarify that historically the purpose has been about the incident, what took place, but a hot debrief should not be to analyse or relive that incident. Local care teams are recommended to be part of that hot debrief and they're part of the training. And the hot debrief training is being continued as part of that staff support leads model. So they're all trained trainers that can be delivered across all prisons. So I'll just hand over to Caroline to pick up the other side. So when we're, when we're talking about the other side, we're talking about the national offer of what we're looking at as preventative. And the preventative kind of services really is part of PAM Assist. They have a educational training. So for all of you that may or may not know, PAM Assist is the employee assistance provider that we do have. Uh, they have a selection of well-being training events and we can book those. They can be booked to take part face to face in person on site or virtually on, on teams to, to look at the, the preventative part of action again well action to prevent mental ill health is is really actually educating as well as part of ourselves to, to look at the understanding in, interpersonally like as in for ourselves as a group and as an organization and I think that starts with the education so it's we have educational workshops that are run by the EAP provider they are a range of topics some of those not to exclude any by any by any stretch is uh, there are some on menopause mindfulness men's health understanding trauma mental health awareness there are also some around resilience and stress 
And I think in light of just kind of the education, usually after education, we have a period of time where we will experience that while we're trying to embed the knowledge that we've learned. We don't just walk in, absorb it, and then just take it away and put it into practice. Usually there's a period of time that we will explore that within ourselves and then actually put things into, into process. And that's where I'd invite someone if they have been to training and something isn't necessarily sitting with them or it isn't embedding in a way that they'd like to, is that this offers an opportunity to then have a reflective session. So as you may or may not be aware, reflective practice is something that's strongly encouraged by the majority of, of market leaders, within the leadership training areas and not just for lead, but for everyday individuals and reflective sessions offers that preventative mental health best practice model to look at the impacts of life on work and work on life because we recognize that you can't turn life off as soon as you're at the at the prison door or at the, at, at the probation gate it's just not it's just not possible but reflective sessions can actually provide that that confidential space with someone who's impartial. No information gets fed back to your line manager unless there is a risk of harm to, to self for obvious safeguarding reasons. But those sessions can be done by telephone teams uh, or in person and are available for groups. PAM facilitators do have um, and are provided with an overview of what your role may be. They may not have specific detail, but they do have an understanding of what the key stresses and strains of being in, in the role of the environment that, that we take place in uh, within our prison environment. Um, and all of those sessions can be booked from a, a line manager, HR performance manager or a HR business partner. I, is there a way of bypassing the line manager? The reason I ask that is, be, is because, of course, that undermines the confidential nature of the, the engagement between the employee assistance provider and the, and the POA member. Does it always have to go through a line manager or, or is there a way to to do it by telephone or online or whatever so I, I think this is where we don't want to confuse the two the two kind of initiatives the first one for eap is significantly that is in really really important that that is confidential and for a reflective session it, it as a preventative model is it's not for as a reactive service so what it enables us to do is to contact our line manager to say actually i would like a reflective session and there is an opportunity then for that for that practitioner from pam to come out onto site and have a full day booking of their diary also so to optimize and maximize we can look at having group sessions so there would be a level of confidentiality that would be that wouldn't necessarily stay in place because other people would be aware that you're in that group but it is important that within that group there are boundaries and settings set which is that nothing gets shared beyond the group I think what I'm what I'm saying is confidentiality when it comes to preventative and best practice of reflection is that information is not fed back to the line manager from the booking process to ensure that we can, as an organisation, maximise the impact for everybody is that the it would have to go through that line manager process to ensure that we can ensure that everybody gets an opportunity to attend the session right. if we have ad hoc individual sessions across all of our sites is it's not necessarily going to be the most it's not going to be the most viable to have yep. individual practitioners traveling out just being really authentic sure no i understand the, i understand the point you're making caroline so therefore if if poa members put in this request via the line via the land manager they should expect to have a positive response to it absolutely there really shouldn't be uh, there really shouldn't be any 
overarching or outstanding themes that I am aware of right in this moment that would be a preventative for someone attending a reflective session. Right, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Return to work practices are uh, a source of considerable concern to to POA members, I, I know. So what can be put in place to get people back into the workplace? And given recovery can be a long process, how are operational grade staff supported through through that recovery? I'll pick up the more internal avenues of support and um, Caroline can then discuss the avenues of support through EAP services. So in terms of return to work for operational colleagues, we can't comment obviously on specific cases. There's a a plethora of reasons that individuals have got to take time off from the workplace and each case will will be different in terms of the needs. But there are a number of internal processes built into absence management policies that are there to provide a supportive return to work. And each one will be a different length of time, again, based on that individual's needs. So one of them could be a phased return to work. So they would build up their hours gradually. And it's usually based on an occupational health advice as to what that person's injuries have been or the reasons for the absence has been and they would normally give advice on how long that would usually take in partnership with the obviously the employee's thoughts so that would be to gradually build up their hours also and at the same time they could have restrictions to the duties at the same time or it can just be a restriction of duties and full hours depending again on the individual needs but restricted duties can be offered And that will enable then that individual to gradually return to their full workload and full levels of responsibilities. The staff support leads that are now in place across the prisons are there to work with local wellbeing leads, HR practitioners to make sure that these kind of supportive measures on a return to work are in place. And also a key responsibility around this is the line manager, that they should be there doing regular well-being checking points to make sure because you know the, the risk is sometimes people can come back to work and okay job done we've got them back to work whereas actually there should be regular checking points throughout that phased return or restricted duty periods until that individual is back to full capacity for want of a better phrase where the line managers are carrying out well-being checks and um, so that's more of the internal processes and Caroline will pick up the EAP involvement in return to works. So in in regards to kind of where we started this conversation today in in light of the pandemic I think is uh, the the most important point to mention is from an occupational health perspective is looking at that return to work from uh, an experience of having long COVID. There is a a restorative eight-week program that is offered um, there's also uh, the the DART, the National Health Support Service, which uh, looks at four kind of areas of asthma, diabetes, obesity and heart condition. There's a support service for this from occupational health. There is also the occupational health assessment and bespoke back to work recovery plan, as Tracy's already mentioned. But from EAP, there is also the opportunity to engage with counselling or computerised cognitive behavioural therapy, or even actually to contact the EAP to understand what local support services may be available to you and be given some guidance from them. And access to kind of physio and musculoskeletal services usually within about 48 hours. So from a, from a national perspective, there are a, a very varied uh, amount of 
opportunities and resources that we can reach for to to assist an individual back into the workplace. That's that's really helpful. That's really useful clarification about the assistance and the policies that uh, are available to to POA members from from their employer, of course. And, and the EAP phone number, the all important EAP phone phone number, uh, is 0800 019 Caroline Tracy, thanks so much for spending time uh, with us uh, on this podcast. Are there any final words that you would like to, uh, final remarks you'd like to make? Uh, before we wrap up. Caroline? I only have one and that's maybe it's biased, maybe it's because I am a, a therapist at heart and I do consider individuals out there who may be questioning whether actually it is appropriate for them to seek support or not. And I think if you ever are questioning whether you should seek support, do take the step. If you're questioning it, take the step. Thank you. Tracy? Yeah, just just echoing Caroline's viewpoint really in, in that it's it, it is there's, there's a lot of support there for people to access and it's just encouraging people to take that first step and pick up the phone, have that conversation with an EAP practitioner or it could be someone in, in the workplace, a care team member, a trim practitioner, a mental health ally. We're, we're lucky as an organisation to have so much available to us and I just encourage people to use it whenever, like Caroline said, if you're thinking about it, then just to, hopefully people take that next step and actually make contact with someone. Tracy Caroline, once again, many thanks. The message is clear. The union is working hard to make sure the workplace risks faced by members are understood and minimised and that members get the support they need in dealing with PTSD and the whole range of workplace-related hazards. Truly, the union is only as strong as its members, and the more members the union has, the louder and stronger the union's voice. So, if you're listening to this and haven't signed up, speak to your local POA rep today, or head over to poauk.org.uk to find out how to join and all the information you need about the union and the work it does on PTSD and everything else as well. Thank you to Caroline and Tracy from the Ministry of Justice and to Jo for sharing her research work. Thank you for listening. We hope you like what you've heard and will join us for the next episode of the POA Podcast. Thanks and goodbye.